A U.S. Air DC-9 is on its way to Charlotte, North Carolina when it crashes miles from the airport. How did weather cause this final crash in our weather series? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. I'm Brendan. And I'm Brennan. Hey! <laughs> we have two people here today. They're, yeah, they're going to do what they can to kind of share the microphone and stuff. But yeah, we have two guests. Brennan is here with us this time, and he went to high school with us too. And he now, would you like to explain yourself, what you do now? Yeah, I'm a newspaper reporter. I work for the Post Register in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which means I don't get to come back to Colorado too often anymore. And that's okay. But... Anyways, you're, you're here now. Here. So. You're back in town, and yes. you were like, "You want to hang out?" And I was like, "Yeah, we got a podcast recording. You want to come be on it?" <laughs> no, I, I listened to plenty of podcasts, so it seemed like a good chance to jump in on one. Good, good. Well, well, this will be fun. And he has consulted us for a story on a plane crash before. Basically, so yeah. yes, yes, yeah. You we... guys had uh, family from there that was unfortunately involved in one not very long ago. Yeah, I think that was end of last year. Yes. Yeah. It was. So. So, we're going to recap a little bit here first. Brendan, did you have anything to say this time? Or was it just, were you good with your opening? Oh, that's fine. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, he's here too again. <laughs> I don't, don't want to get you any legal trouble, so. Oh, cool. thank you. Much appreciated. Well, he's here too. Anyways, again, that guy. That guy. So, recapping. Because we're on episode four of this series, and this is the last one of the four, I will go ahead and run through a quick recap of everything we just covered. So, the first episode of this bunch was EA-66, Eastern Airlines 66, that crashed on approach into JFK in New York. And it started this whole discussion about wind shear in aviation, and what that might mean. And it encountered a phenomenon that did not yet have a name in aviation. A lot of research started going into what that phenomenon was between that crash and then in 82, in 1982, there was the crash of Pan Am 759 in New Orleans, which was then able to be, it was determined that that was low-level wind shear as well, caused by the phenomenon known as a microburst, but hadn't really been understood or accepted by the aviation community yet. Storms were starting to be classified for their intensity, their severity. And then in 1985 was Delta 191, which I think was really, really big turning point in aviation as far as studying severe thunderstorm weather phenomena, and particularly the microburst. So the microburst has been explained as basically this really sudden storm that builds in severity very, very quickly, but it causes this really, really heavy downdraft. And it's a lot like a sink where the water hits, you know, where, you know, the water from the, the faucet will then hit the sink and then it splashes outward. And it's a lot that same effect where the, the wind is pushing downward very, very quickly and then it hits the bottom and the wind just forces away up and over and causes these convective currents near the ground that cause low level wind shear that are almost inescapable to pilots and airplanes unless they know it's there or they know how to get out of it. I've 
heard of wind shear before, but can you just explain what exactly that is? So wind shear is essentially just a very, very fast change of winds, wind direction and speed. So wind shear can be going from wind, say, southbound at 20 miles an hour to a sudden change of winds either stopping completely or northbound at, say, 10 miles an hour. That's a 30-mile-an-hour difference in winds. Uh Wind shear is that sudden direction and speed change of winds. And it can be potentially dangerous, especially when landing or taking off. Heavily, heavily, heavily dangerous. Because at that stage of flight, you're relying on wind going over the wing to generate lift. And if for whatever reason you go from a headwind to a tailwind, you've lost a ton of lift. Especially, I think airplanes always rely on lift. Generally, to fly, yes, yes, to, but to be in the air, <laughs> yes, but, but less room for error when you're on in that stage of, of landing, flight. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. When you're in landing or takeoff, which in all three previous cases we've talked about, were either on a departure or an arrival, and as they were on their final approach, they would encounter this wind shear at a very low altitude and end up crashing into the ground, and then or they'd be taking off and they didn't have enough speed yet. And they were still very low to the ground, and they would still be trying to climb, but they would just plummet. Because suddenly they would lose all the lift over the wing because the winds would change. So that brings us to now. One other note. Uh, These microbursts generally occur mostly in the summer, because it's based on the fact that there's a bunch of hot air and then there's a storm front coming in. So as the hot air rises, the cool air descends in that downdraft. Yeah. Which causes convection currents. Yep. And you'll note that all three of our previous ones so far were in the summertime. Yes. The last one was on Miranda and Brendan's birthday. Yes. Yeah. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so today, leading into all that, today we are covering U.S. Air Flight 1016. And, you know, after flight, after Delta Flight 191, a heavy amount of research happened. And so the industry really thought they finally caught on to how bad, how severe wind shear and microbursts could be. They built all these systems to detect wind shear both on the ground and in the airplane, and they started training pilots on it, and NASA did a heavy amount of research, and it got studied very heavily. So then the industry got very confident in its ability to predict and avoid these low-level wind shear and microburst events, especially in commercial aviation. But it turns out they weren't done. So this crash took place in the summertime on July 2nd of 1994. Which is two years before Christie's birthday to the day. Yay! Yeah. Wow. (laughs) This was not planned. (laughs) No. But it worked out that way. This was a Douglas DC-9-31. So the bigger version, one of the bigger versions of the DC-9. With a tail number of November 954 Victor Juliet. The captain for this flight was to be Michael, or Mike, Greenlee. He was 38 years old. He had 8,065 hours total, of which 1,970 hours were on the DC-9. The first officer for this flight was to be James, or Phil, I don't know, don't ask me, Hayes. He was 41 years old, so he was actually older, and he had 12,980 hours total, which gave him almost 4,000 hours more, actually almost 5,000 hours more, and he had 3,180 hours on the DC-9, which means he had almost twice as much hours on the DC-9 as well. Twice as many hours on the DC-9. The flight crew was scheduled to fly a three-day trip, and our accident takes place on the first day. This first day was scheduled with five separate legs for their day, 
starting at 9.45 in the morning, where they departed Pittsburgh. They were then to fly to LaGuardia, New York, then to Charlotte, North Carolina, then to Columbia, South Carolina, then to back to Charlotte, then on to Memphis, Tennessee. That was to be their day. However, the leg in discussion for this flight is the fourth one, or the second to last, which was Columbia to Charlotte. For this flight, the first officer was to be the pilot flying, while the captain took on the pilot monitoring position. The flight spent 40 minutes on the ground at Columbia before departing the gate at 6.10 p.m. The weather report given to the crew before departure was similar to that encountered when they were at Charlotte earlier in the day, with good conditions, with the exception of some reports of some, th- some thunderstorms. But the flight was airborne at 6.23 p.m. for the 35-minute flight to Charlotte nonetheless. At 6.27 p.m., the captain made initial contact with the Charlotte Terminal Radar Approach Controller, or TRACON, the Arrival West Controller in specific, and he advised them that they were at 12,000 feet and that, and that they had received the current ATIS for Charlotte, which was Yankee. That air traffic controller then informed them to expect runway 18 right, which the captain acknowledged. At 6.28 p.m. and 12 seconds, the air traffic controller issued the flight the clearance to descend to 10,000 feet, and the captain acknowledged this. At 6.29 p.m. and 54 seconds, about a minute and a half later, the first officer commented that there was more rain than he expected on the route. About a minute later, the captain informed the air traffic controller that they were going to turn 5 degrees to the right for a moment, and the air traffic controller approved this. The crew observed two weather cells on their weather radar, one east of the airport and one south of the airport. The southern one, closer to where they were, had a red center with yellow edges on the radar. At 6.32 p.m. and 18 seconds, the captain commented that the rain was sitting just off the edge of the airport. One minute later, the captain contacted air traffic control and said, We're showing a little build-up here. Looks like it's sitting on the radial. So the radial is their, basically their, one of the points along their approach path. We'd like to go about five degrees to the left, he said. The air traffic controller responded, How far ahead are you looking? The captain indicated that it was about 15 nautical miles ahead of them. The air traffic controller ensured them that he w- that he planned to give them a turn before then at about five nautical miles northbound from where they were. The captain acknowledged this, and at 6.33 p.m. and 57 seconds, sure enough, the air traffic controller gave them that turn with a heading of 360 for the turn. A minute later, the air traffic controller gave the flight clearance to descend to 6,000 feet and shortly later to contact another approach controller. At 6.35 p.m. and 18 seconds, the... Air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 4,000 feet for runway 18 right. The captain acknowledged the clearance, then called for the approach briefing, which the first officer replied, visual backup ILS, basically saying they were intending to fly a visual approach to runway 18 right, as that was how the airport was operating. However, they had the ILS set up as a backup option, the instrument landing system, in order to do an instrument landing in the event they needed it. ATC then instructed the flight to turn right 10 degrees, and then to descend and maintain 2,300 feet for vectors for the visual 418 right. About the same time, the supervisor in the tower cab made a remark that it was raining like hell at the south end of the airport, and the controller noted on the radar of a level 3 storm pop-up near the airport. At 6.36 p.m. and 55 seconds, the air traffic controller called the flight and said, quote, I'll tell you what, U.S. Air 1016, they got some rain just south of the field, might be a little bit coming off north, just expect the ILS now, amend your altitude, maintain 3,000. 
So in other words, he told him now to switch to an ILS approach, and instead of going down to 2,300 feet, to maintain 3,000 feet, so a little bit higher. The captain acknowledged this. At 6.37 p.m. and 33 seconds, a tower traffic controller reported to another flight, landing on runway 23, a different runway and a different controller and a different frequency, that there was, quote, heavy, heavy rain on the airport, wind now 150 at 14. At 6.37 p.m. and 40 seconds, the approach controller instructed 10.16 to turn right to 090. At 6.38 p.m. and 24 seconds, so about a half a minute later, air traffic control instructed the flight to turn right to a heading of 170, four miles from Sophie, which was the outer marker for the approach, to cross Sophie at or above 3,000 feet, and that they were cleared for the ILS approach for 18 right. They were then handed off to the tower controller. So they changed the frequency to the tower controller. The flight crew had sight of the airport as they turned from their base leg, so perpendicular to the approach, onto the final leg, directly onto the approach, for runway 18 right. At 6.39 p.m. and 12 seconds, while 10.16 was still on the approach frequency, before they switched to the tower frequency, the tower controller had a conversation with another U.S. Air flight, Flight 806, waiting to depart the airport, that reported that the storm was right over the airport. Air traffic control said affirmative. Then Flight 806 opted to delay their departure. Probably a good idea. Yep. Flight 1016 heard none of that. That was probably unfortunate. Yes, but only a few seconds later, they managed to tune into the frequency. At 6.39 p.m. and 38 seconds, the captain of 1016 made their initial contact with the tower controller. The air traffic controller responded with their clearance to land following a Fokker, sorry, 100. We've, oh... I was going to say we've talked about it before, but we actually haven't because that episode got lost, so never mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, F-O-K-K-E-R. That is a, an aircraft manufacturer, I promise. It is very unfortunate. It is, heavily. <laughs> They're Dutch, to be fair. So anyways, they were cleared to land following a Fokker 100 and stated that the previous landing, which had been a Fokker 28 about four minutes earlier, had reported a smooth ride all the way through the final. I find that very hard to believe. They said they didn't have any problems. The captain responded, U.S. Air 1016, I'd appreciate a pie rep from that guy in front of us. So in other words, he wanted a report from the Fokker 100 that was still on the approach once he got through it to relay through the tower what his conditions were. That flight was U.S. Air 984, which reported a smooth ride to air traffic control, and this was relayed to Flight 1016. So now two flights ahead of them had... Re had said that the ride was smooth all the way to the ground. Though the crew could see the runway on their initial turn to final, the runway began to become obscured by a thin veil for, of rain between the flight and the runway, but the, uh, the first officer could still see the runway. So did they do a visual approach anyway? No, they were on an ILS. That's good. At 6.36 p.m., a special weather observation had been recorded, so this was a few minutes earlier, at 6.36 p.m., a special weather observation had been recorded, and a new ATIS information for the airport had been made, and it was changed to Zulu. It reported visibility of six nautical miles, ceiling at 4,500 feet broken, so the clouds weren't completely overcast, thunderstorms and light rain showers, with haze 88 degrees Fahrenheit outside with a dew point of 67 degrees Fahrenheit, winds 110 at one six knots, so a heading of one one zero at sixteen knots. This ATIS information, though, was not available or broadcasting until six forty three p.m. 
which means that Flight 1016 never heard it because that was after their scheduled landing time. Another special weather observation was also recorded at 6.40 p.m., so before that, the Zulu information was even released, and that one changed significantly. It showed overcast at 4,500 feet, one nautical mile of visibility, thunderstorms, and heavy rain showers at the airport. This was not prepared or reported to any flight crews or air traffic control in time. They need to fix that. I feel like three minutes after, or, so that was recorded three minutes after Zulu came out. That was three minutes before Zulu came out. Well, that's what I mean. Three minutes after that one was recorded, the Zulu one came out, which was incorrect because they recorded a new one. Correct. Which then would take even longer to get out. Yes. And at that point, the weather could change again. (laughs) Right. So. Exactly. We'll get into it, but there are some things that come with that. At 6.40 p.m. and 37 seconds, another controller reported to a departing 737 on runway 18 left that a previous departure reported a smooth ride and winds were 100 at 19 gusting to 1. So significantly different winds than uh, Flight 1016 was aware of yet. And this was reported to a 737 that was preparing to take off on another runway, and they were talking to another controller on another frequency. However, at 6.40 p.m. and 50 seconds, so only a few seconds later, the tower controller talking to 1016 called to report winds were at 100 at 19, which was acknowledged by the captain. And then the air traffic controller called again to say winds were now 100 at 21, so 21 knots, which was also acknowledged by the captain. So winds were obviously changing quickly. At 6.41 p.m. and 4 seconds, the captain told the first officer to remain heads up. So in other words, keep looking. Out the window, pay attention to your instruments, pay attention outside. And that was immediately followed by an air traffic, the air traffic controller stating that there was a wind shear alert at the northeast station for winds 190 at 13. So in other words, they, there's winds on one part of the airport that are reading 100, and winds at the other side of the airport that are reading 190. And they have totally different wind speeds and directions. This was heard by Flight 1016. Simultaneously, another air traffic controller on another frequency reported to all aircraft that winds were 100 at 20, northeast boundary 190 at 16 knots, meaning that this was not heard by 1016, and the winds were reported at different speeds again, but still with the same two headings. The flight then entered some rain. Suddenly, the first officer stated, there's, oh, 10 knots right there. So in other words, they just... 10 knot change in winds, 10 knot change of airspeed. Followed by the captain saying, okay, you're plus 20, take it around, go to the right. So in other words, they're going around. They're going around. They're aborting their landing. At 6.42 p.m. and 16 seconds, the captain reported to the tower, U.S. Air 1016 on the go. So the captain just made a quick call, told them we're on the go. Followed immediately by the captain telling the first officer to go to max power. The first officer asked, yeah, full power? So he asked, And it's hard to tell if the captain heard that because simultaneously, the air traffic controller stated to them, U.S. Air 1016, understand you're on the go, sir. Fly runway heading, climb and maintain 3,000 feet. So told him to keep flying in a straight line and climb to 3,000 feet, even though the captain had just decided to make a right turn on the way out. The first officer then called for flaps 15, so they were actually retracting the flaps slightly. Two seconds later, the captain instructs the first officer, down, push it down. Two seconds later, one of the flight crews called on the radio, up to three, we're taking a right turn by captain here. So 
we have to assume that that was probably the first officer talking, but we don't know. Saying He was basically saying going up to 3,000 feet, but telling air traffic control we're making a right turn, per the captain's instructions. Two seconds later, the air traffic controller responded, U.S. Air 1016, understand you're turning right. Less than a second later, the GPWS, or Ground Proximity Warning System, sounded in the cockpit. Whoop, whoop, pull up. Whoop, whoop, terrain. While someone on the flight deck simultaneously stated, power. Yeah, why haven't they gone full, all the way full thrust yet? There was actually a word before power. It didn't have it in the transcript I read. No, but they dissected what it was. They dissected that it said firewall. Ah, yes, which just means push the thrust all the way forward. So it hasn't happened yet. No one's pushed the thrust all the way forward yet. Four seconds later, the stick shaker activated for about one second, and about two seconds later, the airplane impacted the ground. At 6.42 p.m. and 35.6 seconds. 37 passengers perished in the crash. Two cabin crew and 14 passengers were seriously injured. And two flight crew, the captain and first officer, as well as one cabin crew member and one passenger, were only minorly injured. One passenger in seat 14F that survived stated that they were in pouring rain and heavy turbulence when they hit an air pocket and dropped like a roller coaster. He stated that he heard the engines rev up before the airplane began to climb and that he saw the trees before they impacted the ground. The passenger in 16A was a military air traffic controller who stated he saw the runway at a 45 degree angle off of the left side He said that he saw the numbers and the lights of the threshold as they passed by it at a 45-degree angle at about 200 feet. He stated that the weather was very bad. He said there was heavy rain trailing off of the wings in contrails. All witnesses in the plane, including a flight attendant that survived, stated that they knew something was wrong when they felt the airplane pitch up to go around, but the airplane was sinking. (laughs) Well, well, why aren't we going up? (laughs) The airplane is falling. And that flight attendant, um, I watched the Air Disasters episode, and he's like, I've been in a lot of go-arounds before. That's never happened before. No, that's not normal. Ground witnesses near the approach end of 1-8 Wright stated that they saw the plane emerge from the rain about a quarter mile from the threshold, flying at a 45-degree angle to the right away from the runway. They also stated that the rain was very heavy, and the winds at the time were very, very strong. The airplane touched down in a field within the airport boundary, about 2,180 feet southwest from the threshold of the runway, with the main landing gear and parts of the flaps, where it then impacted the boundary fence, and then some trees, heavily, where it broke apart into several large sections and slid down a residential road, Wallace Neal Road. The front of the airplane, including the cockpit and the first-class cabin, came to rest in the middle of the road, with the flight deck mostly intact, actually. Hence, that's how they were minorly injured. But the first-class cabin collapsed, which, thankfully, happened to be completely unoccupied. No free upgrades? No free upgrades. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> U.S. Air wasn't that nice. I, I guess the 35-minute flight didn't demand a lot of that. No, probably not. Yeah, not no. Much, not much first-class flying for 35 minutes. Several trees and a two-bedroom residence were damaged. The rear section of the plane, including the tail and the engines, came to rest inside the carport of that house. Interesting. Yes. So, based on the depiction in the Air Disasters episode, that flight attendant I was talking about was sitting in the back. I'm pretty sure he was. So, basically, he ended up in the house. Yeah. So, he (laughs) He just ended up in someone's house. (laughs) He climbed out and realized he was pretty uninjured. His name was Richard Damari. And so, he proceeded then to 
like unbuckle people and just get people out of the wreckage. He got five awards, including the U.S. Department of Transportation Award for Heroism. There we go. Cool. Once again, the NTSB was in charge of this investigation, and once again, their first stop was to see if there was a mechanical problem with this plane. We are in the fourth and final installment of this little series of crashes, so we can all take a good guess at what happened. But let me humor you for a second, with a tiny rabbit hole investigators went down for a brief period. When the Pratt and Whitney engines were recovered from the wreckage, one of them was in an interesting configuration, one our listeners have have heard of before. The thrust reverser on the right engine was Was deployed, deployed. (laughs) but the one on the left was not. If you refer back to episode 26, which seems like a million years ago, you'll recall that this kind of a dangerous configuration did bring down Lauda Flight 004, but investigators in this accident did debunk the reverser deployment as having occurred upon impact with terrain proven by abrasions on the buckets. Oh, so it was a bucket. Yes, this one was a bucket. It clamshells outward rather than the 767, which has the slide, the rear sliding yeah. version. Based on the reports of heavy rain, NTSB investigators decided to consult some of their previous research for answers. After Pan American 759, the NTSB and NASA began studying the effects of heavy rainfall on airplane performance. There are three possible ways that rain can do so. One, it can adhere to the airplane and add to the weight. Two, it can slow the plane down. And three, it can reduce the aerodynamic efficiency of the wing by changing its shape ever so slightly. For any of these to happen, though, rain must be falling extremely hard, as in 30 to 40 inches per hour. Upon reviewing the weather data for this incident, investigators found the rainfall to only be 10 inches per hour at most, and thus this theory was debunked. Which is still a lot of rain, I might add. But it takes a lot more rain. Yes. You're talking like hurricane rains. Basically. At this point, investigators wanted to know a little bit more about the storm itself. Witnesses said that the winds were between 25 to 30 knots, though one witness directly under the flight path, for whatever reason, said they experienced 50 to 60 mile per hour winds. I'd be that person under the flight path. I know. (laughs) One of those people doing (laughs) plane spotting out by the airport. You realize that's all of us. Yes. Yes. On the ground, U.S. Air 806 told investigators that they saw two cloud-to-ground lightning strikes and a wall of rain they couldn't even hope to see through. Great. Yeah. Sounds like a fun time to me. Investigators also took the recorded data from the anemometers of the low-level wind shear alert system and gave it to NASA for analysis. This analysis and subsequent simulation is a process also used by the FAA for their wind shear system certification in new planes, and it's the same model used after Delta Airlines Flight 191 from the last episode. The model took the data from the anemometers coupled with the temperature and humidity to reverse engineer the storm in terms of a wind vector field, which I have pictures of on our website. So the pictures are kind of hard to tell what's going on. I have highlighted the plane's flight path and the weird little H configuration you see there are the runways, but the arrows are the wind direction and the length of the arrows is how strong the winds were at that location. So this was at so this was at 6:41 and 30 seconds and then 45 minutes or 45 seconds later you have that oh, dear Jesus that, dear Jesus and then 45 seconds after that you see a pretty well formed storm little microburst right there and you can see in terms of meters it's not that big across and where they turn is basically right at the center of that storm yep. yeah exactly okay 
after NASA modeled the storm, they found the microburst to be one of the most powerful on record. In our previous episode, we discussed in a little more detail what the storm levels were. The past storms were in the range of VIP level 4 storms, meaning that their strength on the radar was around 44 to 50 decibels relative to Z, which is a unit of radar reflectivity. Level 5 is 50 to 57 decibels relative to Z, and level 6 is anything above 57. This microburst was at 65 decibels relative to Z. Yikes. Uh, I, in the episode, the NASA technician said it was like in the top 1% recorded. Yikes. The storm was centered about a mile east of the accident, right over the airport, or 1.85 kilometers for you metric folk, which is actually what NASA reported it in. And it was 2-ish miles in diameter, or 3.5 kilometers. Although the wind itself wasn't the fastest thing ever, the rapid change in direction and speed is what was so debilitating. The maximum wind velocity change across the storm was 86 knots at 300 feet above the ground, with vertical winds up to 30 feet per second downward. The wind field analysis estimates that US Air 1016 encountered the severe wind shear 7 to 8 seconds after they initiated go-around, and ultimately went from a 35-knot headwind to a 26-knot tailwind in 15 seconds, a change of in total of 61 knots. Yikes. Not as bad as the last one, but still pretty bad. Yeah, that is... That, that definitely sounds like a lot. Yeah, It, it, it basically turned the plane into a paperweight. When they're on final, and they're basically only 10, 20 knots from their minimum speed, yeah, <laughs> 61 knots is deadly. It's a problem. No matter which direction There's it no is. There's no more lift on that airplane anymore. <laughs> yeah, and 61 knots doesn't quite get to the point where 191 was, but that's still It was crazy. only 10 knots away. Yeah, that's still crazy. So it's no surprise that the pilots had a hard time controlling their plane, but because of all the other accidents we've discussed that were caused by microbursts, plus a whole lot more incidents we haven't talked about, these pilots had been trained on how to get out of this situation. They were trained to push the engines to maximum power, raise the nose, and hightail it out of there, and they did begin doing that. Everything was looking good to get out, until a few things happened. 1. After the first officer increased engine power, the captain did not trim to achieve maximum engine power, leaving them with an engine pressure ratio of 1.82 rather than the desired 1.93. And secondly, though perhaps most disturbingly, the captain was heard on the CBR saying, down, push it down, followed by the according movement of the control column with the first officer releasing pressure on the control column. So because it was not trimmed, he was having to push the control column, and all he did is relax pressure on it. And that's what started the nose downward. Investigators interviewed the flight crew about these actions, as well as some other examples of not following procedure, including an incomplete pre-departure briefing by the first officer, non-essential conversation during sterile cockpit, <laughs> Kill your ears. And the captain's failure to call out 1,000 feet above the airport as well as 100 feet above minimums. During their interviews, the flight crew got some details incorrect while, while recalling the events that transpired, and the captain did not recall saying to push the nose down or why he would have said that. This phenomenon of forgetting or misremembering details of a traumatic a- event is common. As the brain is triggered by the amygdala to go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, it prioritizes its responsibilities and moves functions like sorting and storing memory to the back burner. Investigators were able to determine, however, what made the crew decide to point the nose down. Was it the stick shaker? 
It's a condition called spatial disorientation. Oh, okay. So just disorientation. And it's caused when you lose cues to help you understand your orientation in regards to your surroundings. These cues come from your visual sense as well as your vestibular sense, which is when your brain uses information from the fluid in your inner ear to tell which way is up. In other words, your vertigo. Yes. The crew's sight was obscured by heavy rain, and the high linear and angular forces they exerted during the mist approach would have messed with the fluid in their inner ear, needless to say. These two things caused a form of spatial disorientation known as somatographic illusion. Investigators determined that the captain was more prone to this, posi- this condition, as he was not the pilot flying. Based on the FDR data, the somatographic illusion would have given him the impression that they were at a very high pitch attitude, one that might have caused a stall. That, coupled with the stick shaker, instinctively caused him to call for the nose to go down, when in reality, they were in the perfect pitch attitude to escape. That is exactly what happened during that Atlas air flight. Yes. We were just talking about this yesterday, him and I actually. Oh, okay. Do you remember the Atlas air flight that crashed last year? Yes. The 767 in Houston. Yep. So basically, what they've determined is that the pilot got really severe spatial disorientation. Really severe spatial disorientation because that airplane got put into situations that are just beyond words. That plane was in a nose down, not just a nose down, straight nose down. Great. Would you like to explain? Talking about the Atlas air flight? Yes. Well, the uh, first officer accidentally bumped the togo switch. Toga switch, sorry. Is what they believe, anyway. They believe he hit the toga switch, so it increased power. But they didn't change the pitch of the aircraft, so it just started flying faster. But he didn't. He wasn't properly scanning his instruments, so he felt the aircraft was pitched up due to the acceleration. So he forced the aircraft into a nose down, whatever. And then it went down. And but he boom. went way too down. Yeah, he uh, eventually they got to about three thirty thousand feet per minute in descent. Ah! Oh my gosh! Oh. How does that even happen? So the, the cap. They said the captain had about twenty seconds to fix the situation that the first officer created. But he was busy with other tasks, like on the radio. and. I feel like you should notice. Yeah, once the airplane's not facing above the Earth anymore and is facing straight down, that should jump up to the top of the list. Well, of course, they didn't know that because they were in a cloud. Right. Oh, well. Oh, and, well. Yeah. And, yeah and bad, bad weather at the time. Yes, so that's one of the big key things that causes spatial disorientation. Now, you have to understand that with 1016, they were also in extremely heavy rain, with very little orientation to the ground because they were pitched up, facing into that rain, into that cloud. Suddenly, the captain, nor the first officer, had no clue what their actual orientation was to the ground in the, like, 20 seconds they had from the moment it started to the moment it ended. Yikes. And this is why trusting your vestibular system is very bad. Yes, But when it's you're a so instinctive. This it is, is instinctive. This is what happens when you, when you go take your IFR training for flying an airplane, is they teach you basically not to trust that. Yeah. They, they teach you, look at your instruments, because that's going to be accurate. Reminds me of the Robert Kennedy thing, where he yep. flew his plane into the ocean because he didn't know how to fly instrument-based flying instead of visual. Was that JFK Jr.? Yes. Yeah. That was just him being dumb. No. Yeah. That was... What? He wasn't supposed to be in that airplane. You said Robert. I thought it was Robert. Was no, it, it was not? JFK, JFK Jr. Jr. Oh, okay. Well, a Kennedy... That, that flew an air, family. Yeah. Flew an airplane anyway, into the ocean. I just have one more point. So they also determined, so I did say that the captain was more prone to this illusion because he wasn't the pilot flying. So what was the first officer doing? 
They also determined that his reaction to the impropriety of the captain's command was an example of poor crew resource management. What he should have done was question the captain rather than blindly following a clearly bad call. Yeah, uh, I feel like that would probably be right. And I believe that he started to, to be honest, but literally they had about four seconds from the moment that he was making that call to the moment they were doomed. Yeah, not a lot of time. Nope. No. There is a lot more in the analysis section about weather report dissemination, which we're going to cover more in recommendations. Yes, we'll get into that in recommendations. the majority. After the break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In five, four, three. Welcome back. <laughs> oh, <good Jesus. laughs> you that You know, you actually did that as soon as she started recording. That was really good timing. That was kind that of was awesome. awesome. I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's humble. Okay. So do you have any questions so far? Are you totally confused? I mean, I feel like so we just watched this video on the Atlas air crash last year, and I feel like that cleared some stuff up about a little bit about what we're talking about with this orientation, at least. But are you clear on like the weather part? Do you get what's happening? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah, the, I understand kind of the currents go like this. The big wind changes within the storm, and that is yeah. not yes. good for a plane, especially when it's that low to the ground. Not right. good for a plane at all at that low of an altitude. But yeah. it also sounds like at this point they knew that was an issue and had some experience. Yeah. With that, so... Yes. Well, kind of. <laughs> we'll get into this here shortly. So, that's a good segue into the findings. So, for findings, they found that there was no evidence of physical or mental pre-existing conditions that would affect the flight crew's performance. That's good to know. Yes. So, they didn't have any mental or physical problems that should have kept them from doing their job properly. They found that there was no evidence of mechanical or system failures in the airplane. So, needless to say, nothing was actually wrong with the airplane. They found that the crew was not provided with the most current ATIS information, Zulu, which is required by the Air Traffic Control Handbook, and it includes reports of thunder and it included reports of thunderstorms and rain showers. So this is kind of key. This is really important because and this is something that they they lean very, very heavily on in the recommendations. We'll get to that in a bit. But they basically they're saying that air traffic control, they knew the weather changed they knew that they were preparing the new ATIS information, but even when it came out and while they were preparing it, they didn't say anything to the rest of the airplanes in the area. They found that Terminal Doppler Weather Radar, TW, TDWR, had not yet been installed at Charlotte, so they didn't have Doppler. The T, TDWR would have provided air traffic control with adequate information on the severity of the storms and would have allowed ample time to inform the flight of the impending danger. So this is also very key. They could have basically avoided the whole situation by knowing way in advance that the storm was going to be bad, that it was happening then, and they could have told the flight crews, hey, we're going to stop this. This isn't going to happen. Was it strange for an airport that big to not have Doppler? Yes and no. It was actually just being really developed and implemented at this time because of microbursts in the past. That's what spurred the whole development of Doppler radar. Oh. Right. They were actually fortunate in Delta-191 to know of Doppler radar and that it was actually in the area. But it was rare. It was still very new. 
and the information still wasn't fast, basically. Doppler radar, as it was being developed further, now up to this point, had been really proven to be very, very essential and informative, but it was still definitely in the stage of being implemented everywhere. Is it still used today? Yeah, is absolutely. There... Oh, yeah. Doppler radar. absolutely used I didn't know if there was an updated system. There probably is, but Doppler is still pretty much the standard. As a matter of fact, we have one not too far away from us. Yeah, and that's actually one of DIA's provided Dopplers. So basically, the Doppler radar uses that effect to judge location and velocity of a storm, or precipitation, or whatever blocks it. Yeah. Does that make sense? We good? Okay. They found that Phase 2 low-level wind shear alert systems at Charlotte performed normally during the microburst. This is actually really important, because the low-level wind shear alert system... So it was performing as it should be, but there were some questions that maybe it shouldn't have been because one of them was covered. One of the low-level wind shear alert system sensors was covered. Covered with what? So just just the same way, I can't remember which flight we just covered, that some of the sensors were blocked by trees, and so it was reading wind speeds lower than actual. The Pan Am one? I think so. Yeah, the New Orleans one? Yeah, the Pan Am one, Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. that, that one was vandalized. It might have been it might Delta. Have been, oh, was it Delta? No, it was One of them was vandalized, but they didn't use that one. Right. It was one of the last three we've talked about. We have short-term memory loss. It's Anyways. Fine. Basically, because it's surrounded by obstacles that block the wind, it reads wind speeds lower than actual. Yes. But in this case, they determined that it was working normally, and it provided enough data to really know there was a problem. But they were still concerned about it, so they mentioned it. Yes. They found that inadequate controller procedures and a breakdown in communication in the Charlotte control tower prevented the flight crew from receiving additional crucial information about the weather on the approach path and over the airport. Also really important. You might have noticed how confusing it was to listen to my story. A little bit. Yes. Because of how many air traffic controllers I mentioned that were mentioning different wind scenarios to different airplanes. Yeah. And on different frequencies and at different parts of the airport. Yes. Yeah. Which isn't abnormal. It's totally normal, actually, to have different frequencies for different operations at the airport. So having one frequency for the airplanes that are leaving on one runway and one frequency for the airplanes arriving on another because they're busy. But weren't there airplanes that were, like, coming in that were on a different frequency yes, than there the, were the several, ones they were on? there were several other approach frequencies. That's also very normal. And that's not a problem, except that there was no consistency in the way that they were providing wind data to the airplanes and wind speeds, wind directions, as well as how that information was getting out. I wonder if they were just reading the current winds, which were constantly changing at the time. Essentially, they were. However, that said, a supervisor didn't step in. And there was no consistent report from a weather station either about these conditions. So there was no agreed upon severity of the winds, basically, within the control tower or the the ATC facilities. This proved to be a really big problem. They found that the flight crew's decision to continue the flight into adverse weather conditions may have been influenced by the crew's preceding flight that had flown the same approach path. So in other words, earlier in the day, they had flown the exact same approach onto 18 Wright at Charlotte, so they were pretty confident of their ability to be able to do it again. And so they just continued the approach and they were like, ah, eh, weather, yeah, we did this approach earlier, it's fine. Well, it turned it's out, not fine. Not fine. <laughs> not fine. Panic. <laughs> yeah. They found that the, thun- the thunderstorms over the airport produced a microburst that Flight 1016 penetrated on their approach to runway 18 right. Duh. That's the whole reason we're here. 
They found that the horizontal wind shear in the microburst event may have been as much as 86 knots, which is the highest wind speed we have talked about with a microburst yet. That's almost 100 miles an hour. But the computed winds encountered by the flight was about 61 knots, as we had discussed earlier, over a period of about 15 seconds. That's pretty crazy. That is pretty crazy. They found that an inadequate computer software design in the airplane's onboard wind shear detection system prevented the flight crew from receiving timely info about the wind changes. Yeah, so there's a detection system on board that was supposed to sound and didn't. And this blew their minds. They were like, okay, this airplane had the new system we developed. It's supposed to be amazing. It's supposed to save them from situations like this, which is the whole reason that we decided to bring this episode up. And why this is important, because it proved, I mean, this episode obviously proved that wind shear events and microbursts still didn't stop having an effect on commercial aviation. Were still prevalent. They were still prevalent. And essentially, this one single point right here is the biggest reason why that still happened. And what they found out was that when the flaps were in transition from one angle to another, the wind shear alert system on the airplane would not sound. It was desensitized during that time to reduce nuisance warnings. Basically, during flap transition, it could falsely set off the warning system. So they would just have it not do it during that time. But in this instance, it should have. And it proved to be exactly at the moment. They should have gotten the alert. And therefore, they didn't get it. And they flew heavily into this microverse situation. They found Sounds that... like fun. Oh, yeah. Big time. They found that... The crew were unaware that they had penetrated the first part of the storm. The captain ordered the first officer to execute a missed approach rather than a wind shear escape procedure. So this is another key thing. They decided to perform a missed approach, and while that included some of what they needed to perform, you know, basically an escape maneuver, there's actually a procedure that they were trained to do to escape wind shear events, which is a much heavier pitch up and a much heavier amount of thrust. They found that the first officer initially executed the correct pitch up of 15 degrees, but he did not provide adequate thrust input and eventually reduced the airplane to a 5 degree nose down pitch attitude before the flight crew recognized the dangerous situation, which was about two seconds before impact. So in other words, this was, I mean, this was really also very critical because they were in a situation where they actually could have escaped if he had kept the 15 degree pitch up and he had gone to full thrust. But instead, the captain was suddenly telling him to pitch nose down. He let go of the the pitch up that he had on the control column, and the airplane nosed over, and then they were in a really, really dangerous situation. Yeah, that is a very long chain of mistakes and problems. It, it really is. It absolutely is. They found that according to performance simulations, the airplane could have overcome the wind shear event if the 15 degrees nose up attitude had been maintained and the proper amount of thrust had been applied and the landing gear had been retracted. So basically, if they had actually followed through with this missed approach thing, he hadn't, the captain hadn't said, down, push it down. And if they had gone to full thrust, they probably actually would have escaped the wind shear without any major issues. They found that the FAA's principal operations inspector and U.S. Air's management were aware of inconsistencies of flight crew adherence to operation procedures within the company. However, corrective actions had not resolved the issue. So interestingly enough, they, the the airline and the operator's manuals basically weren't being followed, and everybody was aware of that. Operations and the managers 
the inspectors and everybody knew that that was happening, but they weren't, basically the resolutions they had weren't being followed anyways. They found that the passenger's manifest was not prepared per regulations or company procedures. Therefore, two lap infants were not identified on the manifest. What? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Can you say what again? <laughs> no. Wow, that is... Sad. Yeah, that's... Yes. But essentially, yes. I mean, they didn't... They weren't counted, and they didn't know they were there until they found them. That's horrible. Yeah. So that's it for findings. So, the probable cause verbatim. Get ready. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of this accident were... 1. The flight crew's decision to continue an approach into severe convective activity that was conducive to a microburst. 2. The flight crew's failure to recognize a wind shear situation in a timely manner. 3. The flight crew's failure to establish and maintain the proper airplane attitude and thrust setting necessary to escape the wind shear. And 4. The lack of real-time adverse weather and wind shear hazard information dissemination from air traffic control, all of which led to an encounter with and failure to escape from a microburst-induced wind shear that was produced by a rapidly developing thunderstorm located at the approach end of runway 18 right. Contributing to the accident were 1. The lack of air traffic control procedures that would have required the controller to display and issue ASR-9 radar weather information to the pilots of Flight 1016. 2. The Charlotte Tower supervisor's failure to properly advise and ensure that all controllers were aware of and reporting the reduction in visibility and the RVR value information and the low-level wind shear alerts that had occurred in multiple quadrants. 3. The inadequate remedial actions by U.S. Air to ensure adherence to standard operating procedures. And 4. The inadequate software logic in the airplane's wind shear warning system that did not provide an alert upon entry into the wind shear. Finn. That was a lot. Basically, that touches on all the major points. And it, it, it is interesting because they put a heavy, heavy, heavy amount of blame on the crew. And I don't, I mean, that is one piece of it, absolutely. But I do think there was a lot more to this than that. I think it proved that the systems that they were developing didn't always work. Any of them. I think it proved that there was breakdowns in communication with air traffic control. I think it proved that there was the, still this misunderstanding about microbursts and what that looks like and cues and, you know, understanding when you're in that situation exactly what to do as a knee-jerk reaction. So, leading into recommendations, we're going to go on a little bit of a trip. They recommended updating ATC procedures to ensure that the ATIS information is promptly updated when significant weather changes occur. Additionally, require that air traffic controllers broadcast the information to flights until the ATIS information is updated and broadcasting and the pilots have acknowledged the receipt. So, th this gets really specific. But essentially what they want is when a new weather report comes in, while the ATIS is being prepared, if this has really, really key information, they should be broadcasting that to each flight basically, as it enters a critical point of flight. So if it's been given a clearance to land, that that information is also then relayed to the pilots as soon as they know about it. That way those pilots can make a decision based on the weather information just given to them since it was different than the ATIS they received prior. So, so basically making sure that the most important stuff is getting out there while they're finalizing the rest of the ATIS. Exactly. Yeah, making sure any big changes in weather are... They're letting the pilots know, because that can happen yes. between ATIS information um, reaching pilots at different times. Exactly. Absolutely. They recommended updating air traffic control procedures to require air traffic controllers to report changes of visibility to three miles or less to other air traffic control facilities operating the traffic in a terminal area, 
and also to broadcast it directly to aircraft under their control until the ATIS is updated and broadcasting. So again, this one is really specific because this one doesn't just talk about weather and wind changes. This one talks about visibility. If visibility gets below three miles, then they need to be relaying this information to all air traffic controllers in the terminal area and to pilots directly while the ATIS is being prepared. They recommended requiring radar and tower controllers to display the highest level of precipitation, whether it be level 1 or level 6, and issue the info, the information to flight crews. So, basically, they weren't required on their radar to actually be looking at all levels of weather and what that looks like, and they weren't required to also relay that information they could see to crews. And they found that that was a problem in this case because the traffic controllers, some of the traffic controllers that were handling the flight weren't paying attention to weather, and they weren't relaying information, which could have been really critical. They recommended providing clear guidance to controllers that blanket broadcasts to air traffic control about weather were unacceptable, and that all advisories, coordination, and pertinent information disseminated to controllers should be acknowledged individually. This is interesting, I think, because what they're saying is when a new weather report is received that it doesn't just go out as a blanket thing to all air traffic controllers without any sort of, you know, acknowledgement from any of them, where they just say, hey, weather's bad, basically, and they don't have to say anything. What they're going to basic, what they're, what they want to require is that air traffic controllers, they literally tell them each individually, hey, weather's bad, and the guy has to go, okay, got it, basically. Needs an acknowledgement. Now, it's way more formal than that, but that's basically what they're suggesting. They want a formal acknowledgement from the air traffic controller that they understood that's the new weather update, and that's critical so that they know they can pass that information on to the pilots. They recommended requiring that the FAA record precipitation levels detected by radar for reconstruction purposes when accidents or incidents occur. They had data to go on, but they wish they had more. They recommended requiring that principal operations inspectors, that that their respective carriers adhere to the company's operation procedures and strict adherence to checklist procedures. Because there were so many things that these pilots missed on checklists, on briefings, on so many things, that they noted that the, the operational inspectors that were on site, the FAA ones, weren't doing their job in making sure these crews were actually really following that. We've seen this one come up in a few, quite a few different incidents before. They recommended reviewing all low-level wind shear alert system sensors and identifying and correcting issues such as the sheltered sensor at Charlotte. They recommended, in cooperation with the National Weather Service, re-evaluating the Central Weather Service unit program and developing procedures to enable meteorologists to disseminate info in very quickly changing hazardous weather conditions in a timely manner to the FAA TRACONs and tower facilities. So basically, they wanted the FAA to work with the National Weather Service and all these, because there's only a handful of them that do certain regions of the country, um, working with the meteorologists that staff the Central Weather Service units to allow them basically more power to get information quickly and disseminate it quickly to air traffic controllers and pilots. And because there's so few of them, there's only so much they can do. You know, like one, the one operating Charlotte was the Atlanta area. So he was operating a big portion of the country, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia, basically. And he had a big job to do. So him trying to get a little bit of information out to one specific area while he's got all the other areas to worry about doesn't always happen. So they wanted to give them a little more power and figure out how to make that information come faster and easier to access and allow that information to end up in air traffic control and pilots' hands much faster. They recommended reviewing wind shear training and procedures and incorporating further training methods to show signs of danger of wind shear events 
and better teach the use of wind shear escape methods rather than missed approach procedures. In this case, they did a missed approach rather than wind shear escape procedures, which they were taught, but they recommended making that even more prevalent and understanding the cues when a storm is turned into a microburst. They recommended developing standards for forward-facing integrated child seats and transport category aircraft. That one's really interesting because there really still isn't. We've talked about it before, where they don't have really any seats for infants or small children to sit in when they're not big enough to sit in their own seat. Right. This subject goes all the way back to our first episode. Yes, it does. Are parents allowed to bring like a car seat? From what I understand, no. They I have usually to be... see them leave I've them seen in it the... before. I think they have to check them. They have to gate check them. Yep. Well, like in, um, car seat was a bad example. Uh, yes. Like a booster. The little booster seats? Something like that. I would... think they're allowed to take the little booster seats on. You can't take a full car seat. Those have to be gate right. checked. Right. Those are pretty big. Yes. But part of what they're talking about here is integrating into current seats. A way a for way... a small child a or child... an infant to be able to be in their own seat and safe in that seat. Yes. A child restraint system. And a way to integrate child seats, period. So, like, if you had a car seat type thing, for it to be easily put in an airplane seat. What if it's just logistically easier to do a whole limb? Basically, yes. That is what the airlines have done. Well, we'll get into this, but basically there wasn't... There still isn't guidance on this, basically. Which we've kind of discussed before. This is one... Because we tried to find it, and we couldn't find... It was, it's basically left up to the airlines. Yeah, this is one kind of sore point in aviation still. They kind of, and, and as a matter of fact, that's one of the points in here, but they they leave it open. It seems like they always kind of leave it open. They recommend something be done, but they really don't know what, because nobody really does. To follow on to that, they recommend requiring that all occupants be restrained during takeoff and landing, and that infants and small children be restrained in a manner that is best for their size. There's the open ending. Yeah, so... Right now, it's basically, I think it's two and under have to be held. Depends on the airline. True. And you can still book them a seat. Yep. There's no regulation. Right. As a matter of fact, most airlines recommend you book a seat for them because then they're on the manifest. They are, but it's way easier for them to count it. Yeah, they, just, they have to add it manually other, other than just it being yeah. there. They recommend conducting periodic check airman training and flight checks to ensure that operating procedures are properly being followed and complied with at all levels. To be clear, what they just said is they recommend checking the check pilots. So We've that, heard about that before, yes, though, too. They believe the check pilots need to be checked and make sure that they are also being trained and that they are training properly and that they are checking procedures properly. Who checks the check check airmen? I assume check people. <laughs> Operation check people. Oh, I see what you got there. Yes. Who teaches the Not teachers how to teach? Check people. Teachers. Yes. Teachers teach the teachers how to teach. Te experienced teachers teach the teachers how to teach. And what teachers, teachers teach those teachers? Other teachers teach the teachers how to teach teachers. <laughs> they recommended re-emphasizing to flight crews the diligence in use of checklists. Wow, you really? don't say. <laughs> use your checklist! Like the way it's supposed to be. That's what it's there for. Quick question. Are... Checklists kept in flight bags or in the cockpit? Cockpit. Okay. Yeah, because then anyone who can come in to the cockpit has the checklist. You can't say, oh, I left my checklist at home. Oh, well. There's two. Sorry, I can't fly today. My now, I, I get that there's two arguments to this because people are like, wow, that's really unsafe because then anybody can fly the airplane. Yes, but at least they know how to do it. <laughs> I guess. Anyone can fly the airplane safely. Yes, at least they would know how if to do it. If you even understand what half the stuff on the checklist is, sure. I, 
kind of a more serious note, though, checklists are really important, and you'd be how you'd be amazed how that seems like a no duh. But I mean, obviously, this crew is forgetting things. But there's a really key incident which we probably won't do an episode on because it's not commercial. That happened just a few years ago, and it was a Gulf Stream in Massachusetts that was taking off, and they took the runway. You know, these two captains, these two pilots, were really experienced. And they'd flown this airplane now for many years. Big golf stream, big business jet. And they go to full throttle, rolling down the runway, and suddenly they don't lift off. Next thing you know, they're in a ditch at the end of the runway on fire. And it killed not everybody, I don't think, but it killed quite a few people on board. Well, turns out they were so confident in their ability to fly this airplane. They, they weren't, didn't use they weren't, checklists. They weren't using the checklists. And what they forgot to do was pull the remove before flight pins from the bottom. Oh, of their, From the bottom of their flight controls. Oh, oh, good Lord. So when they tried to pull. I heard about this one. The stick was stuck and the airplane was not lifting. It was just going Dumb. straight. That's like the second thing on the checklist. Yes, it is. You're correct, actually. They recommended reemphasizing during training and checking the cues for wind shear and microburst encounters and provide new guidance on cues and escape maneuvers. So checking that the pilots understand what cue, what cues there are for wind microburst events and how to get out of them, and then adding to that what's found out from this incident. They recommended reviewing company policies on passenger counts on manifests. Nah. Yes. Basically, they got a lot deeper into it than that. They said, basically, they want... They want to revise the FAA's procedures on manifest because technically, while it was against operating procedures, it was not against regulations, what they did. Oh, that's nice. Yes. So they recommended changing... Not counting the lap infants, you mean? Yeah. 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 So they wanted to review company policies as well as they recommended to the FAA updating their procedures for manifests for transport type aircraft and make sure that it requires all the pertinent information. That is in place now, obviously. They recommended providing information that wind shear alert systems can encounter delays in alerting when flaps are in transition on the DC-9, as well as some other type of aircraft. But this one was really key, obviously, like we said in the findings. This was kind of the whole reason this incident still happened, let's be honest. Even though they weren't following procedures properly, they were really baffled that the wind shear alert system on the airplane, which was designed to prevent this, didn't prevent the incident. And they found out that... During the certification of that system, that low-level wind shear alert system on the airplane, they weren't required to prove that during that it would work during flap transitions, which you might have overlooked because it's like, okay, it proves that it can alert for low-level wind shear when they're flying into it. They just didn't know that it didn't work during flap transitions. They recommended conducting certification tests and require the system to sound more promptly in the event of wind shear events. So they wanted to change the system so that it would sound right away in the event of a wind shear, and they wanted to make sure that it worked all the time. I mean, that's kind of important. Yes. So they wanted to make sure that during its certification tests that happened, and as a matter of fact, the following one, the last recommendation is that they recommended modifying testing of wind shear alert systems to ensure that they are checked when flaps are in transition as well as before issuing certifications and to, on top of that, they added an AD or an airworthiness directive to these airplanes to correct the issue and also just to inform pilots that the DC-9 has this problem on older airplanes. They wanted to make it part of certification of the system that it has to work during flap transitions 
and they wanted to make sure that pilots knew immediately, before they fly the airplane again, that the airplane's low-level wind shear alert system wouldn't sound if the flaps were in transition. And the FAA actually issued that AD, and they actually did eventually replace all those low-level wind shear systems that with ones that would sound during flap transitions. That's basically it. Four parts, and we've managed to get to the point where we are now, which is where the commercial aviation portion of low-level wind shear and microbursts has really, really heavily improved. Now, that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but it's very Because unlikely. it has. Yes. So I'm going to tell you about three crashes that have happened since then, and they've all actually happened in the last decade. Yes. But these have other factors other than just microbursts. So just briefly, in 2011, a United Nations CRJ-100 crashed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I've heard of that one. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of weird conspiracies about that. Probably. Crash. Yes, that's why I'm not getting into it. <laughs> we may or may not cover it someday, but basically, they did go through low-level wind shear caused by a microburst, but that was not the only contributing factor. In 2012, a Boha Air 737-200 crashed in Pakistan. This one had some other factors. So this one was more poor crew resource management during bad weather. So it wasn't so much that the weather caused it, it was the crew's actions during the weather that was contributory, that's the word I'll use. And then two years ago, in 2018, an Aeromexico Connect flight crashed in Durango, Mexico, because there was an unauthorized student pilot in the cockpit. What? Sorry, I don't mean to be so loud. <laughs> and it yes. distracted everyone, and they crashed yeah, take off. Why the heck was he even in the cockpit? There's video of that one. Go look that one up. It's actually really crazy. They um, lift it up, and suddenly they touch back down really hard. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Everyone was fine. They yes, were... everybody survived. They they touched back down on the runway and then overshot. They just, you know, were a little jostled. Yes. There were 39 injuries. But those are the only three instances that this has happened since US Air 1016. And a lot of stuff uh, contributed to those yes. being issues, not just wind shear. Now, that's just talking commercial aviation. However, it turns out this is still a problem for general aviation. Turn it over to you. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Mostly it's the uh, thunderstorms are the big issue because they're more common. Yes. So in general aviation, the aircraft weighs 1,000 and a half pounds. Yeah, not much. Considerably so, lighter than a jet airliner. Yes. Considerably lighter than your car, probably. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so in in weather terms, there's two basic reports. There's the airmets, the <laughs> airmen's meteorological information, and then there's the sigmets, which are the significant meteorological information. The airmets are dangerous to small aircraft, but not large aircraft because they are less affected by wind and turbulence and stuff yes, like that. Yes, weather. The sigmets are the dangerous to every aircraft, including the little guys. So I looked. I had to look it up, but uh, the FAA recommends that you fly at least 20 miles away from a thunderstorm. Which, let me tell you, doesn't always happen. We, I just pulled up the thunder uh, the the map right now. Currently, mm-hmm. oh, that's why you have that open. Mm-hmm. And where we are in Colorado, there's a crap ton of. Sorry, can I say that? Yes. yes. There's a crap ton of thunderstorm. Not right now, but during the afternoon. And but all across the country, it's like if you want to go flying. 
it's just dodging. Yeah. So I don't know how far back this data goes. It's on the AOP website. But basically 26 fatal incidents due to thunderstorms. 41 non-fatal incidents. That's still a lot, though, in reality. That's still more than it should be. Because people end up in situations that they have no idea how to get themselves out of. Right. The extreme winds and the wind shear on a light aircraft is just no hope. Because, you know, let's take a, a commercial jet on, on final approach does about 140 knots. Right. If you lose 60 knots, that's now 80 knots. Right. So you're going to crash. Now, a like a Cessna 172 cruises out at 100 knots. Right. You lose 60 knots there. You'd, all of a sudden, you're traveling... 40 knots. Yes. And You're going straight crash. down. Yeah. Now imagine that Cessna's on final. Right. Which is going maybe 80. Maybe. On on approach. Probably more in the range of like 70. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit closer to the ground. So let's just say 75. Loses 60 sure. knots. Now you're going 15 knots. Yeah. Yep. That's nothing. There's no lift there. There's no lift. You need lift to be well, airborne. 15 degrees of... 15 knots of lift, but that's not enough to keep the <laughs> no. even the light aircraft in the air. No, not at all. So it is still a big issue. That's why if you ever go to a uh, a small airport and sit there and listen to the radio, yeah. whenever there's some any kind of wind shear, the controllers are constantly bringing up to every single pilot. Yeah, they hey. spit it out to every single airplane. And they'll spit it out to them sometimes two or three times. You got a loss of you know, a plus or minus 10 knots on approach right. or whatever and these days i don't know if it's required but they have to but they generally say what the airplane type was that reported it and when it was right because that's so a, they'll say like king air reported 20 minutes ago loss of 20 knots at 100 feet you know yeah that kind of thing yeah well if you're just jostled if you're in an airliner and you're just jostled right imagine being a fraction of that size and being even more jostled <laughs> like it's a very very different scenario Especially when you're talking about pilots that aren't trained at the level of airline pilots. It's something that they're not used to feeling or identifying or, you know, that it's something that's really dangerous for GA because, general aviation, because of the lack of skill and knowledge. Right. And you know, especially you get your private pilot's lessons, you need at least 40 hours minimum. Yeah. And in that time, you might fly in only perfect weather conditions. Right. And you may never experience what it's like to be in a low-level wind shear environment. Right. You can talk about it just like we are. And honestly, I, I like if I find myself in that situation right now, I really hope I would be okay. That's about all I could say. Because, I mean, I know all this stuff that we've talked about, but actually putting that into practice is a totally, totally different thing. You have to really, really commit to it. And you have to know... You have to identify that situation, which you, I just might not be able to, to be honest, if I was in an airplane. Yeah. So that, that's uh, U.S. Air Flight 1016. And the end of our four-episode wind shear microburst yeah. series. Hopefully you feel a little safer flying through turbulence. Yeah. It'll I, be fine. People think a little turbulence is scary. Even a little bit more than a little turbulence. But, it I mean, bad turbulence is when it's like, up and down, stuff's falling out of the overhead bin, that kind of thing is probably the dangerous kind of turbulence. Dangerous type of turbulence that kills Billy Mays. Yes. Rip. Rip. <laughs> yes, true. Yeah. yeah. That's how he, he smacked his head on the overhead bands. And eventually I didn't he, know that. Yeah. It's yeah. also why when the 
seatbelt seat is on, you stay in your seat. That's why you don't hear, Billy Mays here! <laughs> right. <laughs> that. Thanks for not doing that into the mic. <laughs> <laughs> he was conscious. You're welcome! Oh, jeez. <laughs> jeez. Um, but yeah, it's really dangerous. There's a, there's quite a few videos you can watch out there of turbulence and stuff and such. But, I mean, it ultimately, the the, the likelihood that you will encounter a really severe turbulence turbulent event in an airliner, very low. The You'll chances. get turbulence, but at really severe levels, probably not much. They're going up over time, but the chances are still low. I shouldn't have used the word turbulence. I feel like we went off on a tangent. No, I feel like it's it's a proper tangent. This entire now. thing's about weather. So. Yeah. Yes. That's but... what that's what happens when you fly through weather. It's turbulence. But specifically, your the chances of you having to encounter a microburst while flying and not making it are extremely low. Yeah. They are extremely low. And let me so let me tie this all together with your turbulence thing. You might remember that on EA sixty six, they didn't feel anything. No turbulence. Yeah. You can encounter wind shear without the bumps. So you have to realize that turbulence isn't always the dangerous thing. As a matter as a matter of fact, most of the time it's not dangerous. And actually most turbulence is generally not a bad thing for airplanes because it can actually be providing more lift to the airplane. You're less likely to go down if you have more air over the wings. So yeah, that was our episode this week. Thanks to Brennan and Brendan for guesting. Yeah, I, I don't think I contributed all that much but it's definitely <laughs> it's okay we're interested to hearing about some of this to be fair like when we have guests it always seems like it's kind of hard to get the guests to like contribute because to be fair what we talk about is mostly educational it's mostly you listening to what's happening and interacting and asking questions if you have any but it actually shows up shows up really well on our part if you don't have questions because then we did a good job i hope well my job is also to ask questions and get information out of people so that's fair yes you are a journalist true yeah so if we manage to dodge questions we did good <laughs> but if you have any feel free to ask have a great week stay safe stay healthy wear a mask please wear a mask please wear yeah. a mask and we'll uh catch you next week keep, keep your speed up, up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.